My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I'll be speaking with Estelle Davis. It was 2014, or thereabouts. In the broader culture, it was a moment that some have come to call the trans tipping point. Trans people, particularly trans women, reached an unprecedented level of visibility. A key symbol of that moment was the appearance of Laverne Cox, one of the stars of the TV series Orange is the New Black, on the cover of Time magazine in June 2014, the first openly transgender person to do so. Another milestone was U.S. President Barack Obama's mention of trans people in his 2015 State of the Union address, again, the first time that had ever happened. There was also a more generalized increase in the visibility of trans people in popular culture, and at least a modest increase in the willingness of non-trans social movements, even those with relatively moderate progressive politics, to more consistently recognize trans people as legitimate subjects of their own struggle for justice. Around that time, Estelle Davis was living in Montreal and coming out as trans. She was also getting to know two other newly out trans women who soon became close friends and political collaborators. While still fully recognizing the importance of representation and the ways in which visibility both symbolizes and sometimes catalyzes certain kinds of change, the emphasis on a politics of visibility, quote, didn't sit well with them, according to Davis. For one thing, many trans women face barriers to accessing employment as well as public and private sector services, to getting appropriate identification, and far too often just to existing in public space. On its own, cultural visibility does little to change any of that. Moreover, it is through visibility, that is, through being visibly marked as trans, that many of these barriers have their impact. As well, trans people who do not fit comfortably within the gender binary often face significant barriers navigating institutions that are rigidly gendered. And of course, trans sex workers, trans migrants, and black, indigenous, and otherwise racialized trans people face marginalization and violence in a whole range of intersecting and compounding ways. In addition to those significant barriers to accessing income and the resources that they need to live, trans women also face major costs associated with transition. There are many different choices that different people make when it comes to gender-affirming surgeries and other bodily modifications, but almost none of them are covered by the public health care system in Quebec. Davis and her friends had long been a part of scenes that you might variously describe as punk, or DIY, or anti-authoritarian. So out of these discussions of barriers and costs and the limits of visibility, they decided to take action in the do-it-yourself spirit and in a way that would do something concrete to address the material barriers that trans women face. They founded Taking What We Need, which is a solidarity fund by and for trans women in Montreal. The core work of Taking What We Need is raising money for the fund. Individuals can donate online, of course, and at times they've solicited donations from organizations or via community appeals. But most often, the fundraising has happened through organizing parties, shows, and a wide range of other events that combine raising money with building much-needed community spaces. 
Trans women in Montreal are able to make a one-time application to the fund for help with whatever financial needs that they're facing. Davis and her collaborators are careful not to make it bureaucratic and intrusive like a social service would be, but they still have a sense of how the fund is being used. For some, it goes towards costs related to transition, like laser hair removal or surgery. For others, it's used for needs like housing. And applying it towards expenses related to immigration is also common. I speak with Davis about the limits of the politics of visibility, about the material barriers that trans women face, and about the Taking What We Need Solidarity Fund. My name's Estelle. I work at a community organization called Aztec in Montreal, and it's a trans sex worker support organization. I'm a comedian in the city. I'm an activist also. I've been doing this sort of activist trans support work for maybe five or six years now. Taking What We Need is a group that I started with a couple of my dearest friends about four or five years ago. And it's really just in response to the lack of resources available to trans women, especially in the city. Many, many people who are transitioning often find themselves excluded from the job market. And many aspects of transition are quite costly. So me and my three friends, we basically started the group because we were all coming out and transitioning. And we really just came face to face with that reality, right? That there were so many things that we wanted to have access to during our transition that were just so expensive. So we basically just decided to try to alleviate that pressure a little bit, not just for ourselves, but for everyone in the community. We just basically saw that there was like a vital queer scene in the city that were, you know, people are throwing all kinds of events all the time. And we thought we could really just like tap into that by throwing our own events, but then putting all the money we raised towards this fund that would basically be available to people who needed it. I grew up in a really small town in Ontario, and I was always extremely motivated to get out of that place. Like, I feel like I didn't really even know what was out there going on in the world because I grew up in such an isolated place. And I always had this desire to come to Montreal. And when I came to Montreal, I just gravitated towards a lot of different activist organizing that was going on in the city. And I think I got into it mostly through feminist groups that I was getting involved in when I first got into the city and through punk and DIY subculture, especially through like the punk subculture, I guess. I met many feminists and anarchists and socialists who were working on all different kinds of projects. That just became my social world. So when I ended up coming out later in my 20s and confronted with the barriers to access for transgender people, I just really thought the best approach would be to focus on this kind of collective work that could not only respond to like potentially a need, but also be challenging and like transformative to like social ways of thinking or systems that were in place in Montreal could challenge some of the transphobia, both materially, I guess, and ideologically at the same time. Talk more for listeners about the kinds of exclusions and barriers and costs that trans women face. There was this pretty significant moment in trans cultural life, I guess, that happened around 2014, which was called the Trans Tipping Point. And that was around the time of taking what we need got together. It's a really interesting moment in our history because it was the first time when trans people, but I think it was trans women specifically, became quite visible in the larger media. There was this discourse that was developed around that time that visibility was a tool or whatever that we had to fight various kinds of exclusions or marginalizations that the trans community was facing. But it really ended there. 
around that time you had Laverne Cox on the cover of Time magazine or People magazine. That was like the symbol for the trans tipping point. And then this whole discourse appeared. Visibility was touted to be the way out. And the way that we saw it at the time was kind of that it was both and that it was this analysis where like visibility was given this power outside of any kind of material context. So just like to be visible means things will change or like to come out means things will change or just like to be yourself means that the economic or material or that the different kinds of oppressions that the trans community were facing would just somehow like go away if we were to just not be scared of being visible. But it really didn't sit well with a lot of people. And I think partly that's because a lot of trans people, just through their own lived experience, know that being visible in the world is a really difficult experience. One of the main reasons that many trans people are excluded from, for example, like the job market is because of our visibility, like being marked as trans, especially if you're like a trans person of color or you're experiencing multiple different marginalizations at once. The world really isn't open to you. There's so many parts of the world that you can't access. One is the job market. It could be because you're marked visibly as trans. It could be because your ID doesn't match your appearance, or it could be because the name you're giving doesn't match the one on your ID, or it could be because you're a trans migrant and you don't actually have a work permit. Many trans women are perceived as sex workers in general, and sex workers are some of the most stigmatized people, you know? There's any number of reasons why you maybe wouldn't be able to access a job, but it's all tied up into your identity. There's also institutional exclusions that happen very, very often for similar reasons. Many institutional spaces are gender segregated. So when a trans person walks in who doesn't fit into one of the traditional binaries, they can often present extreme difficulties in accessing different institutional spaces. It could also be about IDs. Again, it could also be about class as well. And then there's also social exclusion that happens as well. And this is something, too, that can happen very publicly, like on the street. When you're marked so visibly as trans, sometimes it's very, very difficult to even just like go out onto the street because people are often very shocked by your appearance or people will want to like intervene on the way you look or make comments about you or, you know, can even be much more dangerous than that. Because many people can't get traditional jobs, the black market is a place that lots of trans people turn to, but specifically sex work, and especially trans women, like that's just so integral to many trans women's lives. There's also lots of exclusion happens in healthcare. That's a big one where many, especially people who don't have status, of course, like just can't access medical care, but then people who are accessing medical care the medical system just really doesn't have a way to embrace or understand trans identity. In Montreal, there's thousands upon thousands of trans people trying to access healthcare all the time. And in the city, there's really like two, maybe three doctors who are trans competent in their healthcare. And so everyone's struggling to see those doctors. It's just not enough to cover the need. And so lots of people are going to CLSCs or hospitals or whatever that really don't know how to approach trans healthcare. People are being misgendered or just misdiagnosed or whatever. That's just some of the exclusions that can happen. But I guess the main one is one of the reasons we started taking what we need was because certain aspects of trans healthcare specifically are not covered that are considered like cosmetic procedures that like the vast majority of 
trans women, for example, often want to access and need to access in order to either A, abate their dysphoria on some significant level, or B, to move through the world and not be recognized as trans. There's so many. In Quebec specifically, the only actual medical procedure for trans women that's covered is vaginoplasty, which is important for like a lot of people, obviously, but it does very little to actually change your like day-to-day appearance in the world. And I think it's really your day-to-day appearance that is going to affect the amount of access you have to all these things we were just talking about before. Things like laser hair removal is not covered or tracheal shaves or like the Adam's apple is reduced, is not covered. Breast augmentation surgery is not covered. Facial feminization surgery is not covered, and that's a really big one. There's any number of surgeries that people could want in their face to make it look more classically feminine. All of those things I just mentioned are extremely expensive. So that was really why we started taking what we need, because we recognized that people wanted to have more access to different kinds of surgeries that could, in a material way, really change the way experience. What did founding the group involve? So it was me and two of my best friends, Elle, Barbara, and Lenore Claire Harum. We had all just basically come out and we were all just looking into the stuff together and talking about, you know, what we wanted to do. And we were developing like a sisterhood, I guess. We all really did want to start doing laser hair removal on the face. We started looking into it and we were like, oh my God, this is so expensive. It can be upwards of three, $4,000 to get rid of the hair on your face. And we were like, maybe there's something we can do to facilitate better access to this kind of thing. There must be a way to like do it more DIY. And I think that was probably coming from us coming from our punk backgrounds. We discovered that you could buy a laser hair removal machine and, and they weren't that expensive. You could get one for maybe like 2000 bucks or something. And so we were just like, okay, we should just throw a fundraiser and try to purchase this machine that we can learn how to use. And then we can give free laser hair removal to the community. So we threw our first party and it went really, really well. And like people were really into it and really excited. And we raised a bunch of money. I think we raised more than the 2000 that we needed. But then Elle, we had this money and I was really excited. But then she was like, I'm actually going to talk to my esthetician friend who does laser hair removal and get her opinion on these at-home machines. She went and talked to her friend and her friend basically was like, no, they're a scam. Like, they really just don't work. And then we were kind of crushed. And then we had this money and we didn't know what to do with it because we didn't want to spend it on a machine that wouldn't work. And so we just kept talking. We decided that maybe what we can do is just fund people to go to these clinics instead. Laser hair clinics around the city will make an announcement saying that we have some money. And if there are any trans women who want to use it to go to a clinic, just apply and then we'll give it to you. We started moving on that, but then we started talking more and we were like, well, maybe not everyone wants laser hair removal, you know? People might have other needs that aren't being met, whether it's related to transition or whether it's related to any number of things that could be, in some senses, negatively integral to being a trans woman, whether it's related to housing or related to paying for immigration stuff or hiring a lawyer, or, you know, or whatever. We were just like, there could be any number of needs that people have, so it's not restricted to laser hair removal. Let's just make essentially a solidarity fund. But we were like, but to do that, we're going to have to keep fundraising. And we were all just into it because the first thing went so well. 
and we thought it would just be really cool to have an informal, of course, but an organization or an organizing group in the city that trans feminine people could see and could turn to and where we could make connections, you know, a specific thing by us and for us. What approaches to fundraising has the group taken? All different kinds, really. The need is so high, so people are applying for the fund all the time. And at this point, people are only really allowed to apply one time. But the need for the fund is so high that we can barely keep up. So we do all different kinds of fundraising. The three of us, we throw events as often as we can. We need to be really dynamic in our approach to try to raise as much money as possible. The goal there has always just been to be like, A, would we like to see in the city? But also, what would be something new kind of and exciting that maybe hasn't happened before that could really attract people? So we do that kind of fundraising. But then also, we make appeals to the broader community, the broader city, basically just to be like, if anyone ever wants to donate money to us or like throw fundraisers and donate the proceeds to taking what we need, you know, that would be absolutely incredible. People can donate to us also just like on a one-time basis, like on the internet. And sometimes we also apply for discretionary funding from other organizations. Yeah, just as many approaches as possible. And what kinds of needs are people predominantly applying to the fund to cover? We don't ask for a ton of info. We wanted to make the fund as accessible as possible, and we wanted it to be as distant from traditional bureaucratic welfare models as possible. The goal is never to be intrusive in people's lives or whatsoever, but just to make it clear what the fund was for and then to trust people. But a lot of people still do tell us what they want to use it for. In general, it's for all the things that I've mentioned up to this point, but things that we see consistently are like paying for any fees related to immigration. Housing is a big one. Whether that's finding some sort of stable housing or moving out of some situation. We also see debt is a big one. Of course, many people ask for money for like laser hair removal. It's basically all things related to being poor and trying to seek relief from that. Where have the main sources of support and solidarity in the community been? It's pretty varied, I would say. When we first started, especially, there was, of course, many trans women who wanted to be involved and to help us sustain these events that we were throwing, like whether that's by volunteering time or like their artistry or any ways that they could help us throw the events and that we could make this project viable. That was a really big thing. And especially at the beginning, because at the beginning, everything was volunteer from like the bottom up. But now in the past couple of years, we've got out of that model and now we pay everyone who helps out at all of our events. Other event throwers also in the city were huge sources of solidarity. So like they would be either just throwing events for us or like wanting to help us with our own kinds of things. Taking what we need is experience tons of solidarity even on the community level too, with other support based queer projects in the city. Yeah, really just like sharing our events or just reaching out to us and asking questions about like how they could start doing similar projects like this or referring people to us. Taking what we need has had incredible support since it started and still continues today. 
were very informal. Like there's very little structure in place outside of, you know, there's a place that the money goes to. We have a structure for giving out the money and stuff. But other than that, there are only three people who we try to give as much time as we can, but we can't give as much as we would like to. But the project really just like continues, <laughs> even like outside of our own motivation to do it, it seems. And that's really on the broader community in Montreal at large, because people will just be throwing events for us or like reaching out to us to help them organizing something. You know, like it's really kind of amazing how it just continues to go and feel super grateful for that. You talked earlier about the limits that you see in a politics of visibility for making the lives of trans people better. Beyond your own important work, what other models do you see out there, locally or not, that are intervening to improve trans lives in ways that go beyond visibility? There's so much. I think that it is about going beyond the politics of visibility. I guess, well, at the same time, not leaving that behind entirely or whatever. But there's many, many projects are organizing approaches that I see in the city that would tremendously benefit trans livelihood. And I think of these things like more broadly, because even if specifically we talk about taking what we need as a project by and for trans women, I feel like the way that we engage with the broader community at large in Montreal, like for me, really speaks to the ways that I think about these sorts of things, because I really think that our approaches to politics need to move beyond the kind of like just specific identities. And when I see work that's really going to like make a significant transformation in society that really would like benefit everyone, <laughs> I think that's really one way out of all these different kinds of marginalizations that like we are living collectively. And so when I see, for example, like campaigns for a $15 minimum wage, you know, or when I see like prison abolition organizing or like migrant justice organizing or you know, like these sorts of things that really would have a much broader impact on society. I feel like that's really the way we're going to change the material conditions that we live. In a way, I think that's what taking what we need kind of represents. Because I think that if we're fighting for more access to, like, for example, one thing could be like healthcare, fighting for universal access to healthcare. That's the goal. For me, I really see it in those terms, like universal terms. How can people who are listening, either in Montreal or farther afield, act in support? Well, one thing that I've really been thinking about a lot is like taking what we need, this kind of project. And this is from what I've gathered from speaking to like other trans activists in different cities across Canada, but also like in the U.S. and stuff, is that this project is pretty unique. and this kind of just like at the base level, like solidarity fund doesn't really exist in a lot of places. And it really, I don't know what to say. I just wish this kind of thing existed in more places. You know, I don't want to just be like, people can support to this, can donate to the fund because like, it's true, that's possible. But I just would like to see this kind of thing happening more, you know? What's coming up for Taking What We Need? One of the main things that we're focusing on right now is we do a monthly night called Transamore because we started organizing like in the queer community or whatever, but now we have this monthly party called Transamore, which is really through the years of organizing and working with trans women, like we realized that we are throwing all different kinds of events from the queer community that, you know, could potentially speak to queer trans women, but that 
in the broader context of things, like lots of straight trans women actually don't have any space, you know, because they primarily exist outside of queer subcultural worlds that have come to kind of like adopt this approach where they're like creating space and throwing parties and you know, there's this whole sort of like queer history of coming together and fighting back together against the straight world. But we really came to realize that straight trans women aren't really included in that queer world. And so we have this party called Trans and More, which has really come to be like our primary event thing that we do now. That is really trying to just like address that lack of space in the city. It's basically just like a mixer, kind of like singles night that is just really fun and brings out tons of people. We do that at Brasserie Bobiain like every month. The next one's coming up on April 23rd. And it's open to everyone and it's super fun. We do karaoke and we always have snacks and there's an open mic, but there's all these amazing girls who play music and yeah, it's a really good time. So people should definitely come out to that. One thing that I would maybe like to say is I do think that Montreal specifically in many ways through the organizing and of course like the visibility i feel like the trans community here is like really incredible and really strong there's so much that goes on in this city that i don't think happens all over the place and i think that sometimes we might forget that like as a larger queer community because for a lot of people like the city is our world you know and so the things that we see going on in the city I feel like there can be this tendency to be like, oh, this is happening everywhere. This kind of presence or these kinds of support networks that happen here actually happen everywhere. And that's just not true. So in that sense, I think we're really lucky. But I think that we shouldn't also take it for granted, you know, because it's really people who are here like doing this work and putting effort into it. But I think there's also like an opening for it in some sense, too. And that's part of the reason why we're able to do it as well. I always try to like keep myself in check by reminding myself that this kind of thing doesn't happen everywhere and that also it could easily go away. If we stop doing it, it can go away. And it's really only been since 2014, maybe 2015, that trans people, but definitely trans women, have gained any kind of social traction, like in queer world for sure, but even in other communities as well. It's been maybe five years that trans women haven't necessarily been thought of as like predatory men, you know? And I just, yeah, I don't think we should forget that because it can be forgotten when you exist in a city where you see lots of very visible trans women who are really challenging long-held beliefs about like who we are as people and like what we can do. It's been like four or five years that we've really even been considered people are subjects by like some of these broader organizing communities or feminist communities or queer communities that we exist in. And we shouldn't forget that because it could easily go away or there could easily be a reactionary thing coming back in. You have been listening to my interview with Estelle Davis of Taking What We Need. It's a solidarity fund by and for trans women living in Montreal. To learn more about it, search for Taking What We Need on Facebook. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. 
On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, published by Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Thank you.